Well, it's good to be back, and I want to thank the church for giving me the opportunity to go away for three weeks, which is quite a long time, to further my studies. Um, I'm hoping that this will have a benefit not just for me, but for our church, and um, some of what you'll hear this morning in the sermon is going to be a reflection of what I've been processing in my, um, in my studies back in Minnesota. And so thank you for letting me go, and uh, it's very good to be back. I've missed you all, and uh, looking forward to a, the, the, the next steps together, including our uh, annual meeting tonight uh, here at the church. So there's a lot to look forward to. Our reading today is from 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 through 21. I'd like to give a little bit of background on this passage. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul. It was written to the church in the city of Corinth. It's the second letter of his to them that we have. And his relationship with these people was a very difficult one. In the first letter, he really had to take them to task for some things that were going on in their community, which were very disruptive and divisive. The way they had meals together was, um, was divisive between them. Some people would eat while other people just stood there and watch. Um, there was some immorality in the church that was rampant, and they didn't really know how to handle it, and so Paul had to write them some stern, stern words about that. There was a little bit of blowback from them. I think after they got that letter, they said, well, who is this guy? Uh, who does he think he is? I'm not sure we need to listen to him. And so in the second letter, he spends a little bit of time on one hand saying, well, I do have some credentials. I am an apostle. I do have this revelation from God, and so I do have the authority to speak to you. Other people had come and spoken to them, and they were tending to favor the ones who weren't so hard on them. So Paul has a difficult task. He has to explain to them why it is it's so important that he's the one addressing them and what his authority is as an apostle. But he also acknowledges that he's mad at them and that they're mad at him and that they're mad at each other. And so a lot of what 2 Corinthians has to do is this idea of reconciliation, being reconciled Paul to them. In chapter 6, he says he wishes he could be reconciled to the people of Corinth as a parent is reconciled to a child. Uh, this, if you can imagine a family with a broken relationship between a parent and a child, that's the deep place from which Paul is coming in this letter, that he wants to mend that relationship with them. But in all of it, he wants them to be reconciled to God. So that's a little bit of the background of this particular passage, and it is about reconciliation and more. I want to say one other thing, and this is going to help you understand the sermon a little bit better, and that has to do with the language that this letter was written in. This langu the, the language this letter was written in is Greek actually a variant of Greek called Koine Greek. It was the Greek of the marketplace. It was the Greek that um, people spoke when they went to buy a loaf of bread. Not the, necessarily the Greek that was used to write things like Aristotle and Plato and Homer. It was a little more of a jargon, a slang. Nonetheless, a lot of things were written in it. Greek is very different than English, and that makes our translations of New Testament documents kind of challenging. We have them in English. We have a lot of translations. I'm sure you know. Probably in this room there's four or five or ten translations of this passage just sitting in your lap. Uh, the translators have a difficult job because there's meaning in Greek texts that sometimes depends on the word order in which they're written. Not always, but in this case, perhaps. 
Greek is a language that doesn't have a set word order for how sentences are structured. If anyone here remembers English from school, grammar school, you remember that most English sentences start with what? Subject and then verb and then often an object or a direct object. Do I have this right, Jackie? Yep, okay. And so we would not normally put the subject at the end. Uh, say John was going to paint the house. Then we have the subject is John and the verb is paint, so it's next. And the house is the direct object of the verb paint. And so that's how we know in English that the house isn't painting John, right? How else would we know except for the, where the word order is? In Greek, you could have house, paint, John, but the way the word house would be structured in Greek, you would know from looking at it that it was actually the object. It would be in a case that was the accusative case, not that it matters. That's the case that, takes, that des designates that as an object of a verb. And then you'd see John and his name would be in such, written in such a way with a little change of the ending at the end that it would be in the nominative case, which means that it is the subject of the sentence. So in Greek, you could just say house paints John, and everybody would say, oh yeah, John just painted the house. Fine, got it. So that's a mini lesson on Greek. All that to say that Paul felt the freedom in the way that he wrote Greek to rearrange words inside his sentences in some very challenging ways for translators, but in ways that kind of drew this web of meaning. And sometimes, and I think in the case of our reading today, you'll see, what he left towards the end of the sentence sometimes had some weight. The way the last few words in the sentence would sometimes wrap the whole thing up together. You're going to get an example of that later, so I'm not going to belabor it too much. But just so that you know, that's a little bit of background about how um, the Bible has come to us and some of the challenges that we have when we translate it. That's Just as an aside, then I actually recommend to you, if you have one Bible that you love that you mark up, get two or three other Bibles of different translations. And when you come to some passages, read them in other translations because other English translators may have made other choices and you'll get kind of a deeper meaning out of it. So it's good to have multiple translations of the English Bible. Let's go to our reading, 2 Corinthians 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, bless your word to us this day. Amen. I don't know if that band concert's over yet or not, but...
I know I would get distracted by it. A pastor I once heard said, the problem with sin is that it's so boring. And I thought, maybe we don't go to the same parties. But he was right. Sin gets old. Not at first. At first, it's exciting, it's exhilarating, it's titillating, it's thrilling. But after a while, it's the same old thing. The sun also rises and it sets and there's nothing new under the sun. It's the same old thing. Sin. There's really only one original one. The rest are just knockoffs. And so is the sinner. That boring, uninspired creator of sin inside of me is the old self, sometimes called the old man in the scriptures. And I'm at war with my old man. I'm unoriginal. And I keep on doing the same old thing. And the same old thing. And the same old thing. And it's boring as H-E-L-L. Literally. Forget fire, forget eternal conscious punishment being at least interesting for somebody who's roasting down there. Hell just might be the most painfully boring place there ever was. Heaven. Now that's going to be an exciting place. I keep on doing the same old thing, and I can't do anything about it. I don't have the magic ingredient that makes old things into new things. I don't have a magic wand that will rejuvenate my old man. I can't build a Rube Goldberg machine that takes old marbles through some kind of incredibly circuitous and belabored and complicated contraption, and out on the other side pops a new marble. Whew. I can't put new wine into my old skin. I can't. But if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, they have become new. And this is important to Paul because it's about the Corinthians. It's also about him. It's God's work. It's writ large on his autobiography. Paul wants to reconcile with the people that he's mad at, and they're mad at him. He wants them to be reconciled to him as children are to a parent. He wants them to be reconciled to their father in heaven. And he tells them how the old Paul became the new. The persecutor became the apostle. The unreconciled Pharisee became the reconciled missionary. And the missionary was sent as an ambassador, an ambassador to them. And he has this message as the ambassador reconciliation. And he has this plea, this earnest begging on your knees from the bottom of God's heart request. Be reconciled to God. Let him take your old man and kill it. Let him take your old self and make it new. Let him take your old things and make them into new things and take the Rube roller coaster of reconciliation and fly out the other side like a shiny new marble of rightness. How do you do this? 
What can make the change from old things to new things? It's in the final verse of our passage, and we see it in our Bible like this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But that's not the order that Paul wrote it in. He had the freedom to move words around and to save the important parts for the end. You know how the last thing you say to somebody is the one you really want them to take with you? So when somebody is leaving your house, say, you love, love you, <laughs> your kids, your wife, your husband. How that last thing you say should hold everything together that came before it. The order goes like this. The one who did not know sin, on behalf of us, sin God made, that we should become the rightness of God in him. Now, at first, that's a little awkward. Might get an F in English class. English doesn't structure that way. But the more you say this, the more poetic it becomes. The one who did not know sin, on behalf of us, sin God made, that we should become the rightness of God in him. Think of this as a double modified haiku. It's almost like a haiku, but two halves of it, or two halves of a double. A haiku that's all tied up in the last two words. Everything hangs on these last two words. Everything leads us to these last two words that we should become the rightness of God in Him. Old things become new things in Him. Old Paul becomes new Paul in Him. Unreconciled becomes reconciled, and reconciled becomes reconciler, and reconciler God sent as an ambassador to the Corinthians in Him. We can't stop doing the same old thing, because it's not in us, but it's in him. And he works on behalf of us. He is the one who did not know sin. He's the one who was not acquainted with sin. He was the one who was not familiar with sin. Jesus didn't know sin. He didn't have sin over for tea. He didn't memorize its contours. He didn't take it on a family vacation to Disneyland. Jesus didn't make sin into that old friend, you know, the kind that you can just pick up with right after not seeing them for three years. Jesus doesn't like sin on Facebook. If Facebook had a dislike button, and we all pray that someday it will, Jesus would totally click it. No, Jesus was totally alien to sin. To him, it was an outlander, a stranger in a strange land, a foreigner, an other. If sin was from Mars, Jesus is from Venus. He didn't touch it. He didn't taste it. He didn't smell it. He didn't go there. He didn't do that. He just didn't. He who did not know sin on behalf of us, sin God made that we should become the rightness of God in Him. On the cross, 
virtue morphs into vice. Innocence is bartered for guilt from a dying man. Blood pours down and it drenches the old self in God's rightness. Saturates it and soaks it, permeates it and pierces it, infiltrates it and invades it. And from that river of life, from that fountain of grace, the same old thing becomes the new creation. Hell yields to heaven, new wine floods into new wineskins, and the old man dies and rises again in him.